BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Art of Craftsmanship podcast. My name is Dustin O'Hara, and I'm here with my brother and co-host, Devin. Hello. And we're also joined by our guest today, Ben Wheaton. Hi, everyone. All right, Dev, what do you got for us today for a quote? I speak Spanish to God, Italian to women, French to men, and German to my horse. <laughs> so ben, Ben, I always can, like to try to. Try, yeah, okay, uh, does actually, I'll, we'll let Ben try to guess the person that might have said that. All right. The the quote is familiar. I yeah. I just can't think of who it is. I'll say um, some Prussian. No, g- g- guess the uh, nationality, not Prussia. So he said Spanish? Sp- Spanish to God, Italian to women, French to men, and German to my horse. Uh, is it a, so? Is he Spanish? No, he's French because he speaks Spanish to God. He's French. Yeah. Uh. He's a king. I guess they could uh, any king could say that, really. Um, king Charles <laughs> V of France. Ah. Now, he said that. Now, Ben, I want to ask you, at first, it just seems like a funny slight towards Germans, right? But then it almost, it seems as if, and then I was also thinking, you do teach a lot of animals commands mm. in German. So I guess maybe you could teach a horse, but I think it's more of a slight towards them. Why, why were the, weren't the French more, um, I guess it depends when, but weren't, didn't they, they didn't say anything about the English. Why do you think that is? Well, uh, if this is Charles V, mm-hmm. then he would have been at war with the English. Right. In which case you don't really want to, I guess, speak to them. Um, English wasn't really a prestige language. Most, most of the time, most of the English, uh, people whom Charles V would have dealt with would have been speaking French mm. because the English aristocracy did not speak English. They spoke French ah. back in the day. Oh, that's crazy. See, this is why <laughs> you have, why we have you here. So did they also not like the German at the <laughs> Germans at the time? Well, you know, they're again, that, lower class, you know, German wasn't really considered a high class language. 
Uh, there you go. I was thinking though, actually, when you were <clears throat> when you were saying the quote, Devin, I was thinking like, you know, your horse, I guess, to like a cavalry men, I would imagine the horse would be, you know, of a, a, obviously a prized possession for for a king. You know, they had obviously any horse they want as right. many as they wanted and rode whoever they wanted. They still, you know, with I think with like hunting and. Um, things like that, you know, those, those recreational sports, but I would be like, Oh, if that was, if that was not a necessarily King, then maybe the horse is the one that you actually treat like your best friend and your most respected (laughs) companion. Right. (laughs) But no, I I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, a good jab at the Germans, I guess. Um, so yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's, I think that's a good, well, not a good segue yet. I'm going to say, so all these language, these, these close countries in Europe, for so long, there was these battles, right? On on things changed on who was to keep to make it simple the most popular. So the languages would switch, and I guess there was always Latin thrown in there. Um, right. What was the lowest form of languages? Was it English and German and those type of things for a while? Well, I mean, all languages. Um, I mean, in, in general, in generals, um, you depends which period of, period of, of the Middle Ages you were in. Right. right. You were in yep. uh, early Middle Ages. You always spoke Latin um, because mm. French, of course, came out of Latin as sort of the language of the common people the, from vulgar Latin, mm. um, which is what they used to speak. <laughs> and um, same thing with modern Italian and Spanish. Uh, so, right. but yeah, but they, but on the whole you speak, um, but French, I mean, because France was always the most powerful kingdom mm. Mm. and in the West until the 19th century. And so French was always the most sort of prestigious language. Again, it was spoken by the English nobility. And, um, so the crusaders, the common language of all the crusaders was French. And oh, the same wow. thing goes with, um the language of learning too. So at Oxford university in the 13th century, you have, um, the students being taught first French before they learn Latin. Hmm. Oh, wow. That's crazy. I didn't, I didn't realize that. And was that mainly, amazing. mainly at the time, a power thing or a commerce thing? Uh, both yeah. really. Um, I mean, French was just had more prestige. It was the language of the aristocracy. Right. And I mean, at least aristocracy around that. Obviously, in France, it was also the language of the people. But now, you know, there's a lot of um, good reasons the French were so powerful for so long. But there's also, don't you think it was just a good spot geographically? Right, they can kind of mingle with everybody. Well, I mean, certainly, um, I'm not sure. I'd say that. I would say just that they were always a unified, fairly unified kingdom and populous kingdom. Ah, uh, um, uh. so. You know, you in the wealthiest for a long time, right? <laughs> so, because you know they had, you know, so they were the longest continuity. They were all sort of one, one political entity um, from the time of the fall of Rome onward, really. So, yeah, that's pretty amazing. You think yeah. of all the the history yeah. and strife the English had and the United Kingdom had. Obviously, they weren't united at the time, but <laughs> constantly battling back and forth. Everyone's close. Um, I guess yeah that that's a, that's a yeah. power move power move. Yeah, well also the Norman yeah. conquered 
um, England in you know in 1066 with William the Conqueror, and uh, they all spoke French. Mm. There you have it. Well, yeah, why don't, uh, <coughs> go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say this. Why don't, why don't we? Why don't you introduce yeah. who this yeah. this wealth this wealth of knowledge is? <laughs> Right. So uh, our guest today is our cousin, Ben Wheaton. And Ben is our cousin on my mom's side. My mom's sister, Jackie, is uh, Ben's mom. And so we are first cousins. Uh, ben um, is, he, he's been studying medieval history for quite a long time. Um, he, uh, he, let's see. Um, I've always been fascinated with the way, like, your mind works, Ben, because you like you love that stuff, and you and it, you can remember all the details, and you know, and that's obviously I think all of us when there's something that we're interested in, you just naturally will like fall to that thing, and that's like the way I've always been about art and making, and you know, I I can remember a painting that I saw when I was 18 in a gallery, and I might not be remembered like the dates when it exactly happened, but I can remember what it looked like. All that stuff just sticks in my head. Um, so <laughs> and your background, and then Ben will tell is, you, uh, tell you who's, yeah. who's fighting in that painting. <laughs> right. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> what the battle was. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, Ben's, um, his, his PhD is in medieval studies. Uh, he studied, uh, Europe in late antiquity and he's a historian of the early middle ages. So Ben, can you, um, just tell us a little bit about your history and how you got into medieval studies and what your education is and yeah. where things are going for you. Well, I um, I got into medieval studies. So I studied my, I did my master's and my PhD at the University of Toronto, um, and uh, I got into it because I didn't have any Greek, and I initially actually wanted to do classics, but uh, so Greek and Roman history, Greece and Rome, mm. but I didn't have any Greek, and so the next best thing would be to go do medieval studies because all you needed was Latin, a little bit of Latin, so I could do that. So that's kind of the initial story about how I got into it. But actually, what I wanted to do was I wanted to study, because um, I've always been into history. I was, I've always liked history. But I figured I didn't know anything whatsoever about the period just after the fall of Rome. Mm. And so I figured the best way to learn about that period would be to do a PhD in it, and so uh, that's eventually where I, but I, how I ended up doing it, um, and so I got into, yeah, do my master's and PhD at, at the University of Toronto, and then, and then actually uh, last year I went to Italy for a postdoctoral research fellowship hmm. um, into Flo uh, to Florence to do work there, so traveling around um, looking at um, old manuscripts, old books that were written in the Middle oh, Ages. Wow. Some, some, some of them are 1,500 years old. Jeez. And so, uh, and then this year, well, I've been writing, a uh, number of writing projects engaged in. Yeah, that's, um, you saying that you wanted to learn about that part of history, so you got a PhD, is like saying, I cut my arm, so I want to become a doctor <laughs> to figure out how to fix it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you went you went all the way. You're like, all right, I'm going right. to do as far as I can go. Um now I want to, because do you think being Canadian made you uh, a little bit more interested in that part of history? I mean, all everyone I would assume around the world and definitely in the Americas, we're all interested in knights and all that stuff and battles. It's all pretty much all boys you would think and girls can be, but are, yeah. are interested in that stuff. But 
Do you think being Canadian, having a little bit of that English connection, got you more interested in it? Well, being yeah. a subject of Queen Elizabeth, who's descended mm-hmm. of King Alfred, mm-hmm. um, right. certainly it doesn't get in the way. Uh, right. <laughs> I wouldn't say any more so, though. I mean, there isn't that much medieval studies going on at Canadian universities. There's some, I mean, as much as there is in American universities. Yeah. Um, but uh, not necessarily. I mean, um, it's still very much a new world area. And so if you go to Europe, for example, there is a lot more sort of, I guess, professional activity around it. Right. Um, I remember being. Um, so I was in the I was in the UK for an exchange during my during my uh, undergraduate and during my during my bachelor's degree. And I remember being in a farmhouse that that some guy had bought and was renovating. And uh, you know he had these big old flagstones on the floor of, of the dining room. And I'm like, so you're gonna you know put a put hardwood over this or you know or laminate or some such thing? And he says, well, you know they've lasted since uh, 1600, so they should last another <laughs> few hundred years. I'm like, oh. Right. This is actual old. <laughs> right. Right. So this un- unfinished old. building. When are you going to knock this thing down, put put in a nice apartment complex up? Hey, exactly. <laughs> Get some, some AC. Plastics. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. I will say one thing about the English. They do not like air conditioning. Or maybe we're just used to it everywhere. So. Oh, they <laughs> don't. So it's the same across Europe. And I was in Italy as well. I made sure to get an apartment with air con. Right. But right. Uh, yeah. most don't have it. Those uh, tea and scones are tough to enjoy when it's 90 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> we think like they have a lot of moderate weather, uh, you know. Right. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. Get yeah. As, UK is nice. But, but uh, I, yeah. I guess they just learned to live with it, and, and we've been uh, – we haven't. Well, yeah. I have. <laughs> mm, well, yeah. Well, we yeah. Right. We have the technology. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially like with our with our temp- – you know, the, the, the uh, temperature and <clears throat> the, the – um, here in Maryland, we have really humid air all throughout mm-hmm. the summer. That's so we, true. You know, right on yeah, the coast of the Chesapeake Bay here, where you know it's really, really humid, and that's that's what is a real killer in the summer for me. It's like I could deal with the heat, right. but it's so humid that you just like feel sticky and like sweaty and gross. And right, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> um, Ben, what? So you're talking about going to um, Italy and finding, not finding, but getting to look at these manuscripts mm-hmm. did you go into museums do they pull them out do you get to like touch them with gloves on or do you just kind of go to museums and, and and look around all right well this is sort of the um sort of some of the i guess the hands-on a lot of the hands-on stuff that i do mm-hmm. most of my research right. i do with just you know texts that i've already right. so i just read books and you know and do stuff but the hands-on stuff i do is looking at these old manuscripts and you don't actually go to a museum because they're usually not held in museums. Hmm. They're held in um, libraries, particularly libraries of cathedrals. Right. Or uh, I was so five years ago, um, I went to Italy on a research trip with actually my, my brother, Mark. Um, he and I went, he didn't come with me to the libraries, but uh, we both went together <laughs> and I actually went to the Vatican library. Nice. Um, That's awesome. I was able to go in. So basically, if you have a letter of introduction from your university or your employer of some kind, um, they will let you in. And if you have, you know, saying this person is trained to deal with manuscripts, then they'll let you in. So what you do is you go in, you, um, in some of the smaller cathedrals, it's very informal. You just go in, you have to contact them ahead of time, say, you know, make an appointment to come in and see them. Right. And then they bring the books to you. 
Mm. Um, and then, the, you know, then, yeah, you wear gloves and you just go through them. So that's, so are you, um, <clears throat> the majority of what you're looking at, is that written in Latin? Yep. It's all in Latin. Okay. Wow. And ha- how, how good's your, how, how good's your Latin? It's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, uh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that the, um, university of Toronto really prides itself in is the fact that they're fanatics in making sure that their graduates know Latin, like not the whole university of Toronto, but the, but the medieval studies program that I was in is sort of, uh, obsessive about learning Latin really well. So, uh, we do that very well. Yeah. So it's all Did Latin, you, um... and, uh, yeah. but we also do a lot yeah. of stuff. What's called paleography, which is looking at really old, um, which is the reading of old writing. Oh, cool. So, so that's any that's old as in just like purely age, or also I guess you know I guess you have to old kind of decipher some stuff. That's well, old languages, but at the actual writing itself. Old so you yeah. go in. So if you were to look at an actual manuscript with say, um, Virgil's Aeneid or a history of the middle or history, say of the Battle of Agincourt, um, mm-hmm. you wouldn't. It would be hard for a modern person to read it because. I mean, it's written in Latin using our letter, using our alphabet, but the way you form the letters is very different. Right. So, and they use a lot of abbreviate, tons of abbreviations that are unfamiliar to us. And basically, so you look at a text and you have to figure out, okay, um, I mean, some texts, some scripts, remember, it's all handwritten. It's all, in, it's all calligraphy, as we, as we would call it. Hmm. And so um, they would, so the way you form a letter is different from we would do it sometimes. So, and they would use abbreviations that don't always make a lot of sense to us. Right. Um, right. So now uh, was that like, um, is that using abbreviations? Would that be based on a time period? Like everyone from a time period would use the same ones or that's exactly could be right. Different. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, so basically, like so it depends upon where you are, and yeah. what time mm. period. Yeah, exactly. So we think of, have you ever heard of Gothic lettering? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's sort of what, sort of the most, what most people think of when they think of medieval writing, they think of Gothic lettering. Um, right. That's actually from the later Middle Ages. And what's interesting about it is it's also the most complicated form of handwriting with the most abbreviations. Mm-hmm. And so actually when people in the Renaissance were trying to read this old stuff, um, they didn't like it. So they called it Gothic because, you know, it's like barbarian kind of stuff. But actually uh, it's the yeah. most advanced handwriting. The stuff they really liked and they called Roman handwriting because mm-hmm. they thought, oh, this must have been written by the ancient Romans. It's so nice and mm-hmm. clear. It's basically what the same kind of thing we used to do, kind of writing we use today, actually. Um, it was actually written during the time of Charlemagne. Right. So they, it's, uh, right, the Renaissance, they wanted to go back to a time before. I guess that's why you get a lot of, I mean, there was plenty of negative things to happen, but the Renaissance tried to move past that and go back to, uh, Right, they they really like the Greeks and the Romans, right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Well, yeah, and so, but so that's kind of how we have the Middle Ages between the you know classical period and the uh, Renaissance. But again, the Middle Ages like the Greeks and Romans a lot too. Right. So, uh, right. Um, I was, uh, oh, uh, I just oh, you, good old YouTube. I was watching a bunch of different stuff uh, a few weeks ago, and the fact, I guess, Dust, you'll know, and and Ben that. 
all these what we think is this kind of classical style of white marble statues was most of them apparently were were painted mm-hmm. so so even now we uh <laughs> we we do the marble and we don't paint it right you have the um Lincoln Memorial mm-hmm. in DC as in you know, a lot of white marble things probably should have been painted but we we don't see it like that we don't that's uh Cause it's that, I guess you could say it's neoclassical it's not actually classical right right yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah but yeah it was painted that's, yeah but i mean and the same thing you know because you see um old architecture and you know you, you want it to look pretty so you uh give it lots of different colors right you go to so in florence for example that you have massive you've got this massive medieval cathedral and it's got all kinds of multicolored stone and paint all over the mm. outside it's really quite beautiful yeah and and the um inside of of castle walls too Right mm-hmm. now, we we think of this bare stone, this cold stone. But a lot of times, they'd they'd flatten that and make nice walls and plaster over it and paint it, yep. real nice decorative touches. You know, depending on the room, obviously. But a uh, a, a a a princess or or the the uh, royalty, they weren't necessarily staying in a a uh, dungeonous looking room all the time. Oh no, no, there'd be carpets right. and tapestries and um, painting painted stuff and fireplaces. Oh yeah, right. Great, yeah. Um, so when you're, uh, I was, so going back to like reading manuscripts and things, when you're doing that, are you looking, um, are you going specifically to find out, um, more about the history or, or like information about someone's specific life or a combination of any of it? It's just based on the time period. I am looking at the actual text itself. So basically, okay. most of the manuscripts I've been looking at um, are written, have stuff written in them that's already been printed. Um, oh, gotcha. So they're not texts that. So um, if if I want to go find out about some historical subject or person, I will go to a modern printed book. Um, right. Gotcha. Because I mean they're easier to read, you know, and plus um, they've been edited that you know to make them more understandable and other stuff on it. So going to an actual manuscript is just a lot of work. Right, and uh, right. you don't have that much time, so you have to go to it. But I look to it, so I want to find out, like, specific, because what, the thing about handwriting, handwritten books, is that they, you, every single one is different, because no, because no scribe is going to be perfect. They're going to make right. mistakes, and they're going to make different mistakes. So I go to these old manuscripts to write down what this particular scribe in this particular book um, wrote down like the exact words and then look and compare it with other words with other manuscripts to see, you know, um, how it differs and th- that sort of thing. So, right. And, and I would think just, just as a, as an artist like Dustin would actually want to go and see the painting and be close to it. Right. And, and you can actually put your hands on the, on the manuscript. There's something in that too. You just want to be near and be where the person was, and know that they were here, and this is this is their ink on paper, or their this is their exactly paint, their paint on a canvas. It's, it's the yep. same thing. You exactly. can't just you can't just sit. I mean, we could Google it and probably find it because the the books you're looking at, or the, or the scrolls you're looking at, they're not Maybe newly books, actually. They're not newly discovered. That they they've been like you said <laughs> translated, but you want to really get your your hands and eyes on it. Exactly. Yeah, and they're all books, by the way. No scrolls. Uh, no scrolls. Okay, no that's scrolls. is that way so they, is that right. way longer, way older? Yeah. Well, scrolls. Yeah, they're way older. So basically, what happened is it's actually quite interesting. Um, 
scrolls were popular in the classical period. But then what happened is with the sort of the later Roman Empire, like in the 400s and 500s, books or codexes, they're called books, mm -hmm. we think of today, um, came into fashion. And so they're mm. most books. So most of the texts we have are not scrolls, but codexes. So or books. Gotcha. Um, it, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. And it came in particular because um, uh, especially heavily um, Christians used codexes for most of the time. Um, even with preferred codexes to scrolls, even before the end of the Roman Empire. And so as that as Christianity became more dominant, codexes just became more popular, uh, especially. Uh, but it's just it's just a, a change in um, in fashion or we, are, we we don't exactly know all the reasons exactly why, but we just know right, that these yeah. kind of fashion here. So so we have stuff. Yeah, I would hmm? <clears throat> I would imagine I you know just as purely as like a maker. Got to think eventually, you know, you get to, uh, you're just, you're always innovating. People are always innovating and trying to come up with something that's better or something that's easier or something that like works, you know, more, more efficiently in what they're doing. And so you can imagine that a book would be able to, uh, you know, you don't have to have, you don't have to piece together long pieces of things, right? You can do individual pages. Yeah. And you, and can, you can write you comments can probably, on them. Right. Yeah. And you can work, you know, probably put more pages in or take pages out. That's right. You can kind of build this uh, codex as it were. And I mean, yeah. how else are you going to gonna use a bookmark if you, you know, bookmark hey. and scroll is kind of tough. <laughs> exactly. <You have laughs> and, 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 and the hundredth time when you're, you're finishing up your, your work and the front rolls away down into the puddles. <laughs> uh, and you I have know. to chase it down the street. Oh, that's it. We need something oh, else. Man. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Innovated. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I was interested again. So if so, when you're looking, um, you're going through uh, like a manuscript or a codex and looking for information, and you're you're looking at the way that person wrote, specifically their you know their their handwriting, what they did. Are you looking for possible differences in different people's account accounts of the same thing? Um, so sometimes to a certain sometimes yes. Sometimes they will change the text they're copying in one way or another, and that's important in some way. We, you know, or they'll add something to the text, or they'll make a comment, or they'll write a, a, a footnote, almost what we would call a footnote. Um, yeah. But they'll, but we look at the. But remember, when your the scribes are very highly trained, so because they didn't have printing, um, the, when you're hand handwriting a book, you have to use a very particular technique, and so you don't. You don't sort of we don't you, you don't just scrawl your handwriting like we do, you know. Right. You write in a very um, particular way. You've been trained to to form your letters and write in a very particular way. And so, what right. we can tell from how they write is where they were trained and when they were trained. Oh, cool. Huh. So you know, so we know it. So we look at a manuscript and say, okay, th this is from the 1200s and from this particular monastery in France, because we know that that's how they train their scribes to form the letters. Right. That, that's awesome. I, um, I was thinking, do you, do the same guys that do the handwriting or, or who, who are doing the writing, are they also the same ones that in, in uh, certain books decorate the edges? Yep. Well, now, no, not always. Sometimes different, auth sometimes different um, authors will. So you'll have the text written by one scribe. Mm -hmm. then you'll have the decoration put in by someone else. But often it's the same person. Right. Right. Illustrations by. Huh. 
I guess that's, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, exactly, another, yeah. that's yeah. another thing for uh, books over <laughs> scrolls. If you mess up something in this, in this, <laughs> in this great trained <laughs> art of, of uh, print and, and calligraphy, you don't have to replace the whole scroll. You just rip a page out and <laughs> do that one. Yeah, although ripping the page out is pretty expensive um, because it's parchment. Right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, right. the thing about, actually, here's something else interesting is that in the end of the 500s, um, you had a sh- you had a shift from papyrus to parchment, and so so papyrus is you know is is stuff you ship in from Egypt or right. Sicily, made up of the reeds and you press them together and then it's cheaper. In parchment you have to kill a bunch of sheep and goats, and stretch the skin out and cure it and that kind of thing. So um, until the end of the sixth century, the end of the five hundreds, most people used parchment. So we actually we have. Um, wills so like um, legal texts from the period of the merovingian franks who are who's the first big frankish dynasty um french royal dynasty um from this period and it's all in papyrus Hmm. of course the problem with papyrus is it rots very easily well not very easily but it rots much more easily than the parchment which does not rot and so uh we don't have nearly as much of it as we would like right so the the dates again you said it was the end of the 500s to the end of the 600s basically that they basically used... mid 600s uh, is okay. when you had the shift so it wasn't yeah. huh. um and then <clears throat> go ahead Dustin. what came what was after wait uh okay hang on I, I got a question for this ben can you do for okay for us um can you do an idiot's guide of where can you do the the quick version of <laughs> From I know it's going to be a big jump from Rome to the time of let's say gunpowder. Well, that depends. That's far back with China, but let's say until it was used like cannon. Can okay. you give us a quick like uh, timeline of that? So just like sort of the big events, like sort of kind of what mm-hmm. what happened, as it were. Yeah. Um, sure. Okay. So yeah. the fall of Rome is the big date. There is four seventy six, and the last emperor was deposed. In the West, the East, of course, was still going on with the Byzantine Empire. Um, and then you have in so I'll give you what happened in the area that we call France. I guess France, Belgium, Germany, that kind of thing. And mm. Britain. Um, you have the Merovingian Franks, who were in, um, who were from 450 to to about 800 or 750 rather, and um, they had this big kingdom. And then in Italy, you had the Goths who um, were conquered by the Romans, again, by the Byzantines reconquered Italy for a time. Anyway, the whole bunch of, there's a whole gaggle of barbarians there in Italy and that kind of area. But the Merovingian Franks until 750. Um, and then you have the Carolingian dynasty in France from about 750 to oh, 1000 or so mm. about that. And then because what happened, and here's another uh, easy date for you. Um, Christmas Day 800 was when Charlemagne was crowned Emperor of the Romans. So, mm. sure. Wow. It's the easiest date in history. Uh, <laughs> and then um, after the Carolingians, you had a number of other Frank, um, French dynasties like the Capetians and so on and so forth. Um, so that's when you sort of have France was sort of always a main kingdom from up the middle of the, from the early part of the 6th century onward, was sort of one kingdom formally. Right. Um, mm. And then um, you have uh, the Normans who are subjects of the French king. 
but pretty independent too, um, from, from Normandy conquering England in 1066, conquering it from the Anglo-Saxons, Angles of the Saxons who had con- who had in turn migrated to Britain in the 500s. And um, okay. yeah, so, and then eventually you just, and then you have moving on. And of course there's always um, lots of British possessions in France um, from 1066 onwards. So that's, that's why you have the hundred years war right? and battle of Agincourt and so on and so forth, because the British, because the British Kings always had um, uh, claims in France. So actually you had the weird situation where you have the King of England is technically speaking a vassal of the King of France, but because he owns lands in France and, you know, the whole sort of feudalism thing mm-hmm. where he has to swear an oath of allegiance. <laughs> but, uh, and that's, of course, they didn't want to do that. So that's why you have the battles. Um, right. And um, yeah, so gunpowder came around about the, so we know there was cannons used at the Battle of Cressy in the uh, thir- 1300s, early 1300s, okay. but not very much. It was mostly longbows still. And there um, we are. Um, yeah. So <laughs> that's very vague. And <laughs> no, no. It was, it the was Middle great. Ages is a very big period. <laughs> <laughs> the big Middle Ages. Um, no, that's good. It gives us a little, uh, a little uh, wrap our heads around a little bit. Um, yeah. Someone interesting. Um, I was thinking of uh, Joan of Arc. That was in the right Hundred Years' War. That was around that time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, she's really, really young. Mm-hmm. And how how do um, how does she? Someone that young the French king or at the time, right? You said English had most of it and her, her legacy was she won what a couple battles to help, help re, uh, um, uh, was it recrown the king in a certain area? Um, it's just, and, it's Charles v. and right. Okay. Charles V. And then she, you know, burnt out the stake at 19. Was it? Uh, something like that. Yeah. So she had this, 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 his time from the time she was like 13 to 19 where, uh, she was, she was uh, the thing that brought the morale to the French troops, I guess. Um, but she also, whether it was true or not, believed that God spoke to her, and that was that thing. Um, she constantly that was her thing, which is, is always a good thing back then. Was God speaking through me? So listen to me, trust me, I know. And she gets a few things right, and they're like, okay. But then, didn't they turn her over towards the end? That that's a, I know that's a bad recap of Joan of Arc, but. You tell me. <laughs> well, I'm not an expert in Joan of Arc. Um, but uh, remember, they weren't actually, this was a very rare and extraordinary thing. Um, usually when people say, God's told me this, people did not believe them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the Middle Ages was no more, I guess, um, uh, what's the word, uh, credulous than we are in right. that sense. Um, mm. And so uh, the fact that Joan um, Joan the Maid, whatever, Jeanne Le Pousset, um, mm-hmm. said doing this stuff was, just, I guess, one of the more was sort of weird and remarkable events in history that it basically, if it didn't act, it's one of the things, history is weirder than um, fiction. <clears throat> and she did this, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, she just, I guess, had a, it's difficult to explain beyond the fact that, yes, she had this tremendous charisma. Right. Um, mm-hmm. hmm. Was and it- uh, had lots of followers and mobilized the French. Although uh, Charles 
the fifth, Charles the Wise, as he was known, had a lot to do with it as well. Um, because he had the excellent um, strategy of basically uh, waiting the English out. Mm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then, but yeah, but no, she certainly was, it was a very big deal. And, um, but I can't, I can't say a whole lot about her. <laughs> yeah, no, that's more than I know. It, it just, it's such a, um, such a wild story. I know. It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so then, so, um, I want to, uh, oh, I'm getting power spikes at my house. Well, this might end <laughs> and we're done folks. 35 minutes. I am too. We'll have a Dustin and a Ben podcast. Yeah. Um, I want to get into a bit of the making side of stuff, Ben. Yeah. Um, we've done videos on Dustin made, uh, we, we called a long bow, but now I guess it's, it's not traditionally a long bow. It's just a self bow. Um, yeah, it's a flat bow. And uh, <clears throat> we just put out a video of Dustin making a, um, a uh, pirate cutlass mm-hmm. um, right. out of a machete. Now, the the history Ooh, okay we'll go into this first so the history of the longbow and english having the longbow can you tell us about that and what the uh, advantage was and they won a lot of a lot of battles because of it right or well they won the the big ones um so you know a cressy uh what's the other one around the same time um oh i forget the I forget the one's called and then Agincourt. but really what yeah. happened is is that the english kings and, and other uh, leaders like the Black, Black Prince of Wales, Henry uh, Edward the Black Prince of Wales, um, had grasped sooner than their French counterparts was that um, the knight by the 14th century was obsolete. Mm-hmm. So basically, um, and the French uh, may have known this, but like many cases in history, they cho- chose to ignore staring them in the face. Right. <laughs> um, so basically, the longbow is not, in fact, um, a longer-ranged, better weapon than the crossbow. Mm. So the crossbow has a longer range. Now, right. um, so actually, at the Battle of Cressy, uh, the French had crossbows. But they had hired mm. a bunch of Genoese crossbowmen from the city of Genoa, mm. that kind of thing, who were experts, you know, professional mm. soldiers. And what you do with a crossbow, because crossbows you could took a much longer to load, is you yeah. would um, have these big shields on stands, like movable shields that they would hide behind, that they would shield behind while they were reloading. So what you do is you'd go out, put these shields out front, and the crossbowmen would be behind them, and then they pop out, fire volleys, and back in again. Um, and so, from a long enough range, so. Theoretically, um, the English longbowmen should not have been able to outrange and to mow, to mow down the French like they did. Mm-hmm. However, the longbow has the advantage that it fires much quickly, much more quickly. It was the machine gun of the era, basically. Right, yeah. And also much simpler um, construction. So there's fewer moving parts. Yeah. On the other hand, the longbow also took much more training. To get right. right, right, because the crossbow you just have to. There's not much to do. You know, you can actually have some. Some people actually tried to uh, have the crossbow banned as a weapon of war because hey, it was too easy for a peasant to kill a knight. 
right. crossbow. Whereas a longbow, <laughs> right, yeah. um, so I think it was Edward I and others who banned all sports on Sunday except for archery. Right. So that the people in the towns and the, and the villages could all just train using um, to use the longbow, which took a long time to learn how to use properly. Right. Um, yep. And so, yeah, so that's what they did. So the longbow was fired much more quickly. It was much um, simpler construction, but you had to learn, but it took much more training to use. Whereas the crossbows, much shorter um, training time, but much slower reload and fire rate. And so mm. back to the Battle of Cressy um, and the Genoese um, crossbowmen, who again were experts and professional, who were expert professionals. Um, right. But the thing is, so they should have been able to outrange the crossbows, but they were sent out without their shields out in first front. Oh. And so the French um, leadership uh, made a very stupid decision. And so the Genoese, seeing this, um, beat it because you know they're mercenaries they knew they were being misused yeah right and so you say well you know if you aren't using us correctly we're not going to risk our lives for you mm. for this kind of thing so right. they took off <laughs> took off and then of course the french you know advance <laughs> cavalry but also just um you know on foot and get mown down with the longbows right. uh, yeah i'll say ju just i think um i guess as the english would say they have just a lot more kit for a longbow, right? You need your crank, you need your bow, and it seems you need your shield. For, right, right. Yep. Um, so, and the longbow, they they can just have their uh, their their uh, uh, quiver and, and and bow, and they're ready to go. But you do need a lifetime of training. Um, but yeah, thinking of that that constant, they can shoot so much more. They can dial in their shots. Exactly. Right. Your first vo your first volley. Okay, we're fifty yards short. Now we know what to do. And then that's they can they yeah. they can dial it in a lot quicker than than uh, a crossbow. That that makes that's a lot right. of sense. But the uh, commanders, by the way, in archery would not say fire when they did so. Hmm. Sometimes, so sometimes in movies you'll hear um, them saying, yelling out the commanders to the archers, fire. But of course, right. <laughs> you don't that you don't need fire yeah. when you're shooting. You that, that only applies to yeah. gunpowder. So it's not a good thing right, for a bow. Right. It's, it's no. loose. Is it loose? <laughs> exactly. It, it's loose, loose it's or boring. yeah it's loose yeah. or something like that go, go ahead or, Dust. tell, tell our I'll tell the uh, big controversy around that for us <laughs> so <clears throat> for a uh, for uh, that, that video specifically where i made the the the, the osage flat bow the self bow out of wood i did uh i think i said like all right you know i'm gonna fire this for the first time <laughs> And I've gotten so many comments from people who are like, you don't fire a bow, you shoot a bow. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, it's right. like, I know. Yeah, it's, <laughs> but, yeah that's specifically, yeah. that's funny you mentioned that because I've gotten a lot of comments yeah. on people. Just being like, pedantic. Fire I a bow, know, it's but, not a gun. Yeah. yeah. We know we know what they <laughs> no, meant, but true. it's still kind of funny. Right. But they wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ready, aim, fire. Yeah. yeah, exactly. When you hear that, you're thinking about like, yeah. you know, ready, aim, fire. Gun yeah, because, of course, fire actually just means you have a burning. Like in the old days of gunpowder, you had like a burning wick and you'd put it in the in the priming pan and then it'd go off so put the fire to the gunpowder but <laughs> that's fine um so so if if uh crossbows were used properly in a superior tool uh less training mm -hmm. harder to make but less training and if you had you know you had the the right amount of training you know the professionals and it's a superior mm -hmm. tool so so when 
there's there's this transition between when you know i guess archers from england and wherever would have been the the superior war presence to the then the transition to crossbow so why would have why is, is it similar things like the battle of cressy where there are mistakes that happen that the reason why the bow has this allure of being like the weapon of the time over the crossbow well because so because they well they're contemporary um weapons of war so right. they were used different times just that the british again they were the longbow fired more quickly and so you, if you used it correctly right. as generally speaking the british did then yeah. um it wasn't a problem and right now at this time also you have steel armor being introduced right. and or or more steel because you didn't have like i i guess they call it called, or carbonized iron initially yep so um they i guess it would be full complete steel but it'd be more carbonized iron so better iron so it'd be mm -hmm. harder for right. um arrows to penetrate it from from range they could penetrate it shorter range mm-hmm so let's uh, so we, we can move forward to another battle with it, the um, the Battle of Agincourt. Um, and this was again much later than Cressy. And the thing is about about Agincourt is the French really knew they were doing something stupid by going into the longbows. But um, the problem is the old wise heads who told them do not go attack the British in this situation were pushed mm -hmm. aside by um, you know young ardent men who decided to try to gain honor for themselves mm, it didn't right. work out um but uh the point is is that um in that case the longbows were still used they were still good um but they shouldn't have been um successful it's just that again the french made stupid mistakes and henry v who was the british king mm. who ran it was a really, really, really smart warrior and mm. um, backed them basically into the perfect terrain for being slaughtered. Mm. Um, but so what, but what they did in that case was they walked. So they didn't, there was actually no cavalry car charge in that case. They just, um, all the men, all the French men at arms in their steel armor. So it's sort of, at this point, you have the pinnacle of the most typical knights. You didn't have mail. It yep. was all just steel plate mm. and it was mm. good. But they'd walk. Uh, so they walked. Of course, it was really muddy, and they got bogged down. Eventually, they walked, and then, of course, you know, oh, having these arrows, having these these showers of arrows coming at you, you know, yeah. um, would be uh, first distracting. So I remember, I'm, I'm asking when a professor of mine in the UK, I said, uh, "Wouldn't uh, I mean would the steel stop the iron? I mean, I mean, wouldn't the steel stop the uh, the iron arrowheads? I mean." Right. From a distance, you think right. they would. So what he did was he threw a pen at me and said, how does that make you feel? It's basically having this stuff come in. And, and of course, you can still penetrate the eye holes and, that, and, the, and the chinks in the armor elsewhere. Right. <laughs> and when you, once you get close enough, it'll chink. It'll actually penetrate the steel itself. Um, but it, it could confuse them. You know, It also basically impeded them. It confused them. It disorganized them. Yeah psychological warfare just yeah, yeah right like volleys and volleys of arrows yeah, falling exactly on. yeah and so what they do is they go in and then um disorganized stuck in the mud and then so and then what happens is the archers um put down their bows and ran around the sides because they what they also had with these iron with these wooden stakes sharpened wooden stakes they pound in beside them to stop a cavalry charge mm. right. um, and then they what they do is they'd run out from 
around the, go around the sides of the big French column of men, of, of men at arms and take, it said they had hammers and swords. They were unarmored. Mm. They were lightly, so it's better when you're walking around mud to be, not have any armor on you. Right. Um, right. So they take big, big, big hammers and like knives and swords and that kind of things. And, and, and individual men at arms who'd kind of fallen out of the, out of the press because they were this time really, right. it's like a crowd, like a big, you know, like a crowd disaster mm-hmm. when everyone's yeah. pushed together yeah. in a smother kind of thing. That was what's mm-hmm. going on at, at Agincourt. Mm, um, guys would sort of stagger out from the main press of the men at arms and then they'd be tackled by three or four archers crowded around <laughs> them and, you know, killing them that way. Um, yeah, there's then, a, then, Sorry, there's a great, um, it's obviously not historical, a great episode in Game of Thrones. What was it, season six? D- Dust, have you watched it all? Yeah. Have mm-hmm. you watched Game of Thrones, Ben? I haven't, actually. Oh, man. Oh. Well, anyway, there's this battle. <laughs> you should watch it. The last season's not so good, but everything else is good. Um, so I heard. There's a great battle that they get surrounded and and pinned, and then they're all pushed together kind of in fear, and it's it's done so well where yeah. people are getting trampled and you're just getting pulled under and you're just laying there on top and there's screams. I can see how that's distracting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Yeah. so Agincourt, of course, was designed for that because the, the, the field is sort of like a funnel with woods on either side of you. And of course, right. what Henry, Henry V was aiming at. But uh, yeah, but it's yeah, kind of, so it's it's kind of like the uh, the modern tank. You feel great until you get bogged down, and then you're surrounded by a lot of angry people. Exactly, are, it's like all are, the guys with their... who are pissed off that you've had the advantage for so long, and they're like, "All right, yep. now now five of us are going to go after you, and you're yep. going to be done." We got a bunch of rockets and get to that one, <laughs> right? But uh, <laughs> but yeah, in this case, and then of course the French turned around and tried to walk back. But then the other ways were coming after them and got into a further mess and more archer. Then the archers went back and picked their bows again. And, Anyway, it was a. Uh, oh, so yeah, so I guess the the longboat didn't get phased out until I guess the the gun and the cannon. So they were they weren't equal longbow and crossbow, but I guess they both had their advantages and dis- disadvantages. Right. Yeah, they did, and yeah. depends how they were used again. And say in siege, for example, crossbows would be much better. Right. Um, and again, they were. They were very successful because, again, people tried to have them outlawed because it was, you know, a, a war crime to use a crossbow, apparently, because, you know. Uh, but when you're uh, under has, siege, anything goes, huh? Not, every, not, 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 not anything, only if you don't surrender. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's, um, <clears throat> I was thinking about that with, um, uh, you were, let's see, you were mentioning earlier about, um, Oh, oh! One of the questions I had, sorry, was uh, why, uh, why were they not on horseback in the Battle of Ashencore? Why did the why did the knights go and like the cavalry go? Why why would they not have been on horseback? Because the, the English the were behind sharpened stakes, oh, and because of right. the mud. Ah, uh, yeah, like in uh, if if the listeners, if you guys are familiar with the with um. Braveheart, the scene where all the horses are coming in and they lift up yeah. the stakes, right? That that keeps the yeah. gotcha. Okay. Cavalry charges um, happened more happen more in imagination or fiction than in actual reality. Right. Um, gotcha. It's because again, they're very easily stopped. 
Right. And again, you could do it, but again, but, but by this point, the armored knight was obsolete. Right. And, and um, so, and and if you think about it, a lot of times, uh, unless you do it the last second, a, a horse will not run into a crowd of people like per, they uh, most people. certainly will not. Right. Yeah. Right. So they they and, will stop whether you want to go in or not. You you, you would think. Yep. Yeah. There's actually an excellent description of this um, in a book I'm going to recommend at the end of this. But uh, teaser, yes, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. nice. But, um, <clears throat> we were we were interested, kind of like in uh, um, so your specialty. You said it's early Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Um, what would kind of, if you can, kind of give us the day in the life of kind of of a normal person, or maybe even like a, uh, I don't know. Like I guess maybe a. A soldier, right? If they're if they're in a battle, like how would that look? I know we've kind of gone over a little bit, like how things would happen, but and you get this like um, all the tactics and the setup, and you got to draw people in. But what would the normal day in the life of a, a, a warrior be, or a soldier be, where you would like you, getting prepared? You'd have would all the gear be you be would it be your own gear? Would it be you know something that's in a barracks you'd have to go and pick up? Do you know that enough to kind of go through that some with us? Well, I can't. We don't have a lot of descriptions of. The day in the life of an ord- right. of ordinary people. Um, so, by early Middle Ages, I'm actually talking about late antiquity, which is also, I mean, early Middle Ages is different from late antiquity. It's sort of Charlemagne, whereas late antiquity is fall of Rome kind of thing. But, right, right. So, Roman soldiers from the late empire had their equipment assigned to them by the state. So, it was provided mm-hmm. for them. But later on in Europe, um, if you were a warrior, you provided your own armor, arms and armor. So this is one of the reasons why um, soldiers and people in feudal armies and whatnot are usually from the upper and middle classes. Right. Because you could afford your armor. Same thing with ancient Greece. Right. Um, All people who fought in war were from the upper classes. The lower classes did not fight. Hmm. Um, Until, of course, later on when they... When sort of you had like big states like Athens conscripted lower class people and gave them like, like a state issued armor. Um, but the point is, so I can give you a day in the life of a king. Sure. Would you like? Yeah. Specifically, yeah. A descri- yeah, we have a description <laughs> of the day of oh, awesome. King Theodoric the Great, who was uh, the first or the second Gothic king after the fall of the Roman Empire. Um so what would that what what would that time period? It would be, be? Um, four ninety to five twenty, thereabouts. Okay. Circa. Gotcha. Um, so he would get up in the morning and have breakfast, and then he would um, do work. So he would uh, uh, respond to letters and that sort of thing initially. Is that is that do work as code for uh, go to the bathroom? Uh well, <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's uh, they, they don't mention that actually for some reason. Uh, um, real, wait, real quick. Uh, what's the? Um, this is my ignorance here. But what is it? There was a king known, an English king, for uh, ha- having people or having people around as he went. Oh, was it John? Because he went to the bathroom a lot. What was the king? He he would he would relieve himself while uh-huh. like at court. Maybe. Um. Well, there's a story that the French king Louis Louis the Fourteenth would always be attended by nobles wherever he went whatever he did ah. um, to keep them under to keep them under his thumb well, uh, that's one way <laughs> to do it uh, yeah but uh no i mean they'd be you know they were always attended i mean the thing about europe was 
everyone who was anybody had tons of servants because labor was cheap, um, which is not the case in the East, actually, where labor was more expensive. But uh, so basically, so yeah, go up, answer letters, do, do paperwork, essentially, first start of the mm -hmm. day. And then he would um, have the main meal of the day, which would be in, in the middle of the day. And he'd have sort of any important people who were visiting, he would be with them. He would meet them and talk to them. And then he would, um, then he would play uh, dice <laughs> for uh, and gamble for the next for the few hours in the, in the afternoon. As 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 long as he kept winning. As long, yes. Well, so if basically, if you wanted, if you were a diplomat visiting him and you wanted to have a good uh, answer, you made sure he won. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or basically, of course, it's dice. So sometimes he would. Um, cheat, but other times he if he was in a good mood or a bad mood based on how the dice went, um, and then and then he would have audiences with the visiting dignitaries or petitioners or what have you and talk to things, and then and then that would be it basically. So basically, that's sort of the public part of the day. Um, huh. In terms of other stuff, say a a soldier, it's difficult to say. I mean, you would. Well, I don't know, actually. <laughs> we yeah. aren't really told because we don't because they don't they didn't tell us what happened to the common people. We we knew what a monk did right. because right, right. we have text describing the exact layout of a monk's day, which involved lots right. and lots of prayers and saying the Psalms and um, and a few hours of labor and reading and that kind of thing. Right. right. Yeah. Once. Um, so once. Gunpowder comes along mm -hmm. now. That's a huge big change, and for a while it it was not a great war weapon because they they didn't have it perfected. But once it did, I know a lot of people think or thought at the time that was maybe along with crossbows the end to some type of noble battle. But do you think you think that's the the thing? I mean, was battle ever really noble? Right? You can do a lot of nasty things in war. <laughs> obviously, everything's right, fair, and love and war. Yeah. So it was was that the end once once. Uh, a gunpowder came along was that the end of noble noble war no it was not very much not mm. um so basically uh what what gunpowder did was it well the first thing it did was it made armor obsolete and so you didn't so you could have much you could have much bigger armies with simple gunpowder weapons although you still have to have a strong noble contingent these cavalry generally speaking um, had to be from the nobility because they had to be able to afford their own horses. Right. Mm. And right. so actually, don't forget, in the 19th century during the Napoleonic Wars, the nobility had a very big role to play in war. I mean, the right. soldiers were all right. commoners. Right. Um, I think it was uh, the Duke of Wellington who said that the, the men he commanded were mostly the very scum of the earth or what have you. Um, <laughs> which, given how they behaved after... Uh, Battle of Waterloo, what they did to the French civilians once was not entirely false. Um, yeah, right. Of course, armies are, unfortunately, have that tendency. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you can imagine being <clears throat> being in this gigantic horde of, of pouring out of testosterone. Yep. <laughs> yep. What, is, what does that result when, in and, afterward? Or, yeah. Yeah. And when you've right. been under, and when you've been under very heavy discipline, suddenly it's lifted. You yeah. Berserk. Right. Um, right. We, we see what obviously like mobs do. It's it's just a, yeah. a, an army is just another mob after they've yeah. 
been done killing, so they're they're <laughs> ready and and case. and they know they're also going to march off to battle the next day. So it's right. almost right. anything goes because why not? Well, not the next day. If it's battle the next day, they'll be kept under discipline. Um, but okay. when they've right. won, that the problem comes. All right, so if you get um, a free weekend, you really let loose. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, lots and lots of drink uh, for sure. Yeah. Um, but actually, what's interesting, back to the gunpowder thing. Um, so basically, they had like cannon in the 1400s. So again, at Cressy, they had, we actually, in the Battle of Cressy, we have, they found a couple of stone cannonballs from the field, archaeologists. Oh, wow. Huh. But again, they would not have played a huge role uh, because they didn't have enough of them and they didn't, um, they just weren't as uh, effective enough. Um, right. to do it but by the time you get into the later part of the 15th century and actually um by the end of the hundred years war you had gunpowder much more in use and the best users of it were the french so actually mm-hmm. the best soldiers in europe from the 15th century um onward were the french mm-hmm. and so actually richard the third the king of england you know the guy who's the hunchback the kind of who you know usurped the throne right. kind of thing um, was defeated um, by Henry VII, um, who came and conquered him. Um, you know, my kingdom for a horse, that whole scene kind of thing. Right. Um, by, who had quite a few French soldiers in his army because they were the best professionals of the time. Oh. And they, because they could, they, they knew how to use gunpowder and they knew how to, they knew very well and they were very good at it. So once you learn how to use that stuff, you, you kind of get an edge over everyone else. Yeah. And then, then you kind of have, that's the end of castles, right? Cannon? Uh, no. Um, um, you still, well, you, you have to change the kind of fortification you make. Right. Um, right. Castles were never foolproof anyway, because if you could, um, you could always besiege them long enough or storm them. Right. Um, right. Because fortifications are never sort of, uh, they're always sort of a delaying thing. They're, they're not, um, they're not a panacea. Right, but uh, you did. So, but you have to change the kind of fortifications you have. You still have massive fortifications built in um, throughout up, up until the, well, frankly, the twentieth century. Remember the Maginot Line? Right, that's a, that's a big castle in the First right. World War. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that uh, um, they went right through that one. Well, they went around it, but uh, <laughs> yes, what happens? Um, but yeah, you still have fortifications, but they have to be changed a lot. And obviously, with um, you can't depend on them anymore because you have the cannon can obviously get through them much more easily. Right. So the fall of Constantinople right. in 1453 happened because the Ottomans hired German um, bombardiers um, who were able just to get rid of the, uh, to batter down the walls very easily. But again, but it's, it, but the real change happens. Um, obviously that does spell the end of one kind of fortification. But then what you have is the, the lighter field guns, um, so the muskets, musketeers, right, and arquebuses, which are a kind of musket, an early kind of musket. Yeah, um, what's that? An arquebus? Yeah, it's like it's a it's a matchlock um, musket kind of thing. Okay. So, uh, it's it's an early kind, it's an early early kind of musket. Gotcha. And um, but actually, with with the arquebuses, you had to have pikemen defending them because it took too long to. Uh, to reload. Mm. Uh, yeah. So it actually, you had a shift. So initially, you don't have all gunpowder armies. You have half gunpowder, half pikemen. Right. So, the, right. so in the English Civil War, like Oliver Cromwell and company, 
they had that kind of mix of musketeers and hmm. uh, uh, pikemen. Uh, pikemen. I feel yeah. like that's a that's a good gig in an army. The pikemen. Yeah, right? you're kind yeah. of defensive. You're hanging if they come. We'll start, or you guys shoot. We'll <clears throat> hang here, hang low. <laughs> yeah, um, that can work. Although if they start shooting at you, you yeah. kind of uh, they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're good defensive. They're good in certain cases. So actually, <laughs> right. in the yeah, later Middle Ages and early Renaissance, you had a number of very prominent pike armies. Like the Scottish were one. You know, the whole William Wallace mm-hmm. thing that was very much mm-hmm. um, the 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 Siltrons, the Skiltrons of pikes. And then you also have the Swiss, who were very good with pikes. Mm-hmm. And could actually attack with pikes, which is very unique at the time. But yeah. again, they were eventually um, squashed by uh, other armies who would who mixed arms better. Right. Because pikes are sort right. of a uh, they're good in certain times and places, but not others. Yeah, right. They're they're so, uh, they're fun until people situation. get close until people get close range, and you're like, ah, well, we, I had my fun. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> I poke from afar until they get past, and ah, well, yeah, we yeah, try. When you when you eventually figure out that uh, cavalry um, charges are a bad idea, um, right? Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I was thinking um, about so you have something like the Hundred Years' War. Did they have a lot of time for sport, or was warring was that their sport? Was training that... for it, training for it was their sport. But actually, what they did remember the Hundred Years' War had had lots of breaks in it. Hmm. Um. So you had a number of long peace, periods of peace in the middle of it. Hundred Years' War is kind of a uh, myth, but okay, right. it's you know it's a use, it's, it's a useful term to describe something that was something that went on there. Right. But um, yeah. But and you so most of the time, but but it was pretty destructive all the same. What with um, warring, what, what with marauding bands of unpaid soldiers running around. Um, but uh, yeah, it's one of the reasons that Joan of Arc was so latched onto is because they, um, the common people were not in a good mood, um, uh, having to defend yeah. themselves from mercenaries. They just needed a lady around to lighten things up. Well, they needed someone who had a message from God. Well, there you go. <laughs> that, right. That'll yeah, help. She did. And how, <laughs> well, how old is she? Don't worry about it. Oh, straight. No, no, she's young and innocent, and therefore definitely <laughs> right. Right. Definitely, um, anyway, she gets yeah. the direct line. Yeah, although you read some of Shakespeare's plays, she's held as some sort of vile witch. Ah. So there you go. <laughs> English English would think that. Oh, they would indeed. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. why they burnt her. But um, <laughs> um, actually, when it's so, what was the question? Uh, I was saying uh, uh, the the sport was was yeah, the war, sports, yeah. was warring the sport or well or no what, what hunting. Mm. Oh, so okay. the upper class is hunted with and then and falcons so you know falconry and. Hunting mm-hmm. and hunting the wild boar, or hunting deer, or going after birds with your falcon, kind of thing. Mm. That was big. But that was very popular. Right. Um, so that was their sport. Yeah, and leisure. And I guess still that leads, that's, leads us back. That's a little bit of training the, uh, too. Your, yeah, yeah, it is yeah, training. Yeah, exactly. But it's also fun, <clears throat> right? Yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Back to the uh, the original quote right here. Speak German to your horse. That's <laughs> why so I was like, well, you know, that's the, all part of that. You know, like. Hunting and and uh, and the the uh, business of war. There you go. Right, and we and after all that, we we've talked about it before, Ben. Once, um, once everyone comes over to the Americas and starts colonizing the 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 
going back to kind of the old school warfare, right? When, when all the, uh, um, settlers were getting schooled by people on horseback with bows because they thought they were past all that, right? They're like, okay, we're done. We know how to do it. Civilized. We'll line up and, and, uh, Native Americans would just circle around and let loose a hundred shots. And well, that's the that. old story of the, of gorilla, of irregular warfare, yeah. of gorilla right. wars, warriors being problems for right. people who are used to fighting um, big conventional war. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, noble warfare as opposed to yeah. yeah. But eventually, that happens warfare. in a lot of places. Same thing with you know you. Um, event, another big shift, for example, was um, when the Mongols invaded um, Europe. In Eastern Europe, you they were unused to dealing with the kind of warfare the Mongols did you know, on horseback archery kind of thing. So they had to shift. So what you eventually you do is you. Um, adopt the tactics of your enemies. Oh yeah, yeah. So, right. That's yeah. all. That's how the uh, Texas Rangers eventually started to do okay. Against, that's right. Yeah, they uh, they had to adopt the yeah the the, the same tactics. Yeah, yeah. Same. <clears throat> so I wanted to ask you um, about. Uh, so a premise to this question is that um, one of the one of the book series that I love is a series called dies the fire. Mm -hmm. It's all about a post-apocalyptic world where there's an event that happens. It kills all gunpowder and all electricity. So it sets us all back to pre electricity and Mm gunpowder. So it's all, you know, medieval style warfare. Uh, and this happens, the, the event happens in the book in, I think it's 96 or 98 or something like that. So, at the time, uh, the the story follows a few different people's, uh, you know, kind of plot. But one of the main guys is a medieval. I think he's like a 13th century uh, history teacher in Portland, and he take over. He takes over the Portland. He takes over Portland. He's the like the and the antagonist of the story, but uh, he is part of. And they reference a lot of in this book. They reference the SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder, as like a historian, what's your what's your take on the SCA? Or if you, are you like, do you know people who are in it? Are you part of it? Or is, I'm I'm curious. I um, know nothing about it. I have to say. Really? Um, huh. Okay. Society or creative anachronism? I think I, I mean I'm, I think I've heard of it, but I right. uh, yeah. So there are it means for the broader subject here of people who sort of like reenactors or people who do things like restoring right. like yeah. like medieval crafts or war like yeah, yeah. there are lots of groups that kind of do that something called like medieval martial arts for example i've seen advertised right yeah. and i've seen did see some reenactors last year i was at a conference and uh um so academic medieval medieval studies conferences are always as i say uh, big ones at least are half um academic conference half comic con and <laughs> <Nice>. um <laughs> yeah exactly. which i mean they still be have actually had like uh re uh so like medieval night reenactors come and she's like so like medieval hand-to-hand combat or you know here's a blacksmith um a a medieval blacksmith uh demonstration or that sort of thing um yeah so i so i know people do that um right right thing is uh scholars like me we will deal mostly with books and writing so we would be be, be pretty useless in uh post-apocalyptic world um, i have to say um apart from you know any other skills we have apart from that so you have a, right. Do you have a lot of like um, your brain uh, Renaissance festivals up there, up around you in Canada? Uh, there, maybe. 
I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been to one. The only stuff I've been to um, has been uh, either in the States or in Europe. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, no, I know, I, I, I know there are a few. Yeah. I like I like that though. I didn't realize um <clears throat> like you said when there's kind of um you know history medieval, medieval bleh, conferences and things and sometimes they'll bring in reenactments to just have that like the real you know the hands-on experience oh, yeah. there. Um and I would imagine that those reenactments are probably uh I would hope much more realistic to what would have actually been happening at the time, you know, as opposed to the Renaissance Festival. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, medieval times. Yeah. So you have experts come in and say these guys are not. They're not. Um, they're like people who've studied carefully, like the like the old like the fighting manuals, like which have yeah. from the Middle Ages, saying here's how you here's like they have like sword fighting instruction manuals, and they yeah, follow them very right. carefully and say it because you know. So it. Um, you can find YouTube videos about this that are very interesting, actually. So, yeah, there's a good. Um, I, I've referenced it before there's uh modern history tv he does a lot of that he's an english guy um mm -hmm. i think he made his wealth in video games so that gives him time to just play but he's also really interested in the history so they'll sit there and read copies of manuscripts mm -hmm. try to figure out how they would do it and then he gets his horse out and the stuff and they yep. go and try it's a, a really good channel but yeah definitely a, a great watch yeah so i mean you could so again uh I mean, there are ways of thinking about doing this, but it's just uh, the idea that, I mean, yeah, I guess the idea that a medieval historian would be able to uh, do that is a little right. far-fetched to me. Just right, because, right. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there are some who could. Maybe there are some who could. I, mean, I yeah. don't know anybody who does this. <laughs> well, but, I mean, uh, yeah, I, that, I love the story because it's it's fun and fanciful. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. a post-apocalyptic story, which I love. Those are always but fun things. But there are there are way too many perfect like circumstances that happen in the story it's it's definitely you know it's like there you know there's this one group and then they just happen upon someone who has training in sword fighting so then they they bring that person in and then they just happen to per, come up, up across a person who like has all this history and training <laughs> and bow making and so they bring that person in and it's like you know it's just too many like perfect circumstances in the book but it makes but it's it, fun it makes for a fun read right. it makes for it's a good story they build this really interesting world and i really like that too because yeah. they're taking their knowledge of current day uh, technology as much as they can still use like hydraulics mm -hmm. and warfare and uh, you know infrastructure and using all of our current mm -hmm. skills and technology and then combining it with medieval technology like well, building medieval technology concrete. was pretty good at times so I'll say right. this that um, the end of the Roman Empire there was a reduction in a lot of technology um, although not agricultural technology, so they still have the same level of very advanced plow, for example, in the early right. Middle Ages, which would be a kind of a horse-drawn, wheeled with wheels kind of plow, quite advanced. Right. But by the end of the Middle Ages, their technology was far in advance of the Roman Empire. Mm. So, Is it far advanced? Far in advance, yeah. Right, they had right, far okay. surpassed them. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, wasn't there a time, Ben, where... Um, you basically have a, a big chunk of history where they're kind of looking up at the aqueducts, figuring out like what kind of amazing people made this. Um, not in the, not on the continent. No, no. Um, in hmm. you're thinking, what you're thinking about is, um, the Anglo-Saxons in England, hmm. um, who came and they actually have some poems of the, of the ruins. They were giants ruins kind of thing. Ah, uh, right. But those are the yeah. Anglo-Saxons 
who right. came in and they who were not from Roman civilization. Right. right. And who solves up and wondering how did they do this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But people um, on the continent were more concerned with where can we find the money to repair this thing, which frequently <laughs> right. they couldn't. And so they couldn't say so this. That's why they fell in disrepair. Right. They said, hey, dummies, let's fix it. And then they got slaughtered. Well, yeah, we'll just kill you. How about that? Yeah, well, <laughs> but no, um, they, no, 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 they knew. I mean, it was, you, part of it was just, you didn't have the money to um, build those kind of things anymore. And so. Right. You need the, the slave repair. labor, right? Well, not slave labor. No, just uh, gold. Yeah. Um, you had plenty of, you may have plenty of slave, but don't forget it takes high crap, it takes highly skilled craftsmen. You don't actually have that many slaves around. Right. At this point in time. Hmm. And the peasants who you did have under your command didn't know how to do it. Um, <laughs> right. And so you have to actually hire people. And they, they were quite expensive. Really right. expensive slaves. Uh, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but, sure. Uh, sure. but generally speaking, it was, yeah, it was free men who you had to pay a lot of money to. And uh, right. why do that when you can do other things instead? So... Right. <laughs> well, it's, uh, if if we could like take a time and information that would make Devin and I seem incredibly uh, uneducated compared to you, this has been a perfect podcast for that. <laughs> but I love it's such a fascinating time period yeah. and such a fascinating. I mean, just like you know your knowledge of these years yeah. and this transition between, like you said, the fall of Rome and then. Uh, modern you know i guess the what's the so it's it goes well roman times and then you have middle ages and then middle ages is about 500 to 1500 we say okay about a thousand years yep. which is a long time right. <laughs> and yeah yeah so i mean it's just, just you know yeah and stuff but uh, yeah that's, i mean history is just so big and so complicated so much is going on i mean it's right. like you know Right. I mean, you can never get to the end of it. Yeah, there's so much to go over. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to have you on again and do a whole just like <laughs> we'll do a weapons podcast. Sure. And just go down the line and do every every type of weapon. Yeah. We'll go from uh, the stick to the cannon. And just... There you go. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. And it's like, man, I got I to gotta get a few more PhDs to do all that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. going to come next. Time, I'm going to YouTube really hard and I'm going to come in yeah. and throw some facts at you. Well, um, well <laughs> like, like well, military history um, people uh, do a lot of this kind of thing, military historians. Um, and, I, and I listen to a couple of their presentations. It can get it can either be very, very interesting or very, very boring. Right. Because um, they kind of go right. into like, you know, um, here's how many pounds of, uh, of fodder you can carry on this horse. And therefore, this people at this point in time. Okay. Right. Cool You're like, but who like, did who did they murder? Start with that. And yes. Then we'll just talk tell about me what that. actually happened. <laughs> right. I don't want to hear about you know how much uh, how much how many inches of pollen you found in this cave. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. But well, usually they're very interesting. There's uh there's good yeah. history teachers and bad history teachers. Um, yeah. Well. Yeah. So so we want to do. Uh, actually, you know what. Ben, can you give us, normally we ask a disaster story from a maker, something that went really wrong. Do you have a good, I mean, we've heard a few of them already, but a, a, a good couple, a, a, not a couple, a good history disaster story? Um, spot. Yes, I can. Um, I'll tell you about mm -hmm. uh, 
Well, one of the people I study is an historian called Gregory of Tours. He wrote in the uh, late 6th century, so the late 500s. And he loves telling about disasters happening to hapless um, people, uh, sort of showing how foolish people are, sort of <laughs> one of his things. Um, so I'll tell you uh, about a disaster that befell. So two Merovingian lords were, uh, were, were fighting each other. And uh, one, so one was coming from the king. The other was fighting against the king. Excuse me. Um, and he, uh, the, the guy who was fighting against the king was called Mumelanus. And he was holed up in a city, in a, in a walled city. And this other guy who was coming after him, Guntram, um, was leading his army. And the city was surrounded by uh, a river. And so Guntram, who led the army from the king against the rebel Mumelanus, or, or I should say Mumelus, um, said to Mumelus, let us across and, you know, um, I'll, I'll beat you and across there kind of thing. Mumelus said, come over. Come. So across the river. So Guntram led his army across, started to leave his army across the river, but Mumelus had dug pits in the river with uh, spikes in them. And so many of Guntram's army got uh, drowned and or skewered on their way over. So I had to retreat. So that's kind of the, uh, this is a disaster story for you. It's actually, it's kind of played for laughs, actually, in the history. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> wouldn't have been very funny at the time, but, uh, yeah. Uh, that's, that's great. I love that one of the, one of the scribes that you've, you know, you've researched specifically likes, you know, telling disasters and things, oh, yeah. things that have befallen different, <laughs> uh, you know, characters from history. That's right. Well, that, that's good. Yeah, come on that's up. good reading, right? Yeah, <laughs> it one. would be. Yeah. I mean, some of it's quite funny. Um, <laughs> that's great. Uh. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, <laughs> this is, again, this has been fascinating. I'm super, you know, pumped and appreciated that you have come and joined us today, Ben. This is so much fun. And like Devin said, we need to pick your brain some more about, you know, all sorts of stuff, but we'd love to go through the history of weapons and things since, since we love to. Yeah, thanks. To thanks for having me. Guys. It was a lot of fun. Things. It is uh, fun. Yeah, well, we're, you're now going to be our, our um, resident historian. Okay. Yeah. So we'll have you come in and <laughs> have you on, we'll have you pop in for a We'll have you clear up. Devin, actually, there wasn't many slaves. Well, you know, well, there were a few slaves. <laughs> There's a few, there's gotta be a few <laughs> yeah. around, right? Yeah. Um, Right. Yeah, I was going to say well, we, um, rec recommendations. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the book so, I was so we'll I mentioned that was yeah, talks about um, this kind of it's very interesting. It's a book called The Face of Battle by a man named John Keegan. Okay. The Face of Battle by John Keegan. Go so on. it's a book that looks at three battles: Battle of Agincourt, um, the Battle of Waterloo, mm -hmm. and the Battle of the Somme. Yeah. First World War. It looks at what exactly happened during the battle. Mm. You know, like what, what, how did cavalry, what did, what did horses actually do? Did horses actually charge, you know, right. ranks, ranks of bayonets? Do they, okay. are those, are those three battles compared? Yep. They're, well, the, yeah, they are compared, but they're basically the experience of the individual soldier is um, compared to each of them. Hmm. Oh, man, He's asking awesome. what actually so is cool. actual battle like. Right. right. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's not. And it, nice. it's, it's it's a class. Not it's a, it's a it's an older book. It's a classic that is so much fun to read, and you just learn so much about people and about history and about like weapons and that kind of things. Yeah. Awesome! That's awesome! I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on Amazon and buy it. Um, Heck yeah, that's great! It sounds so cool. To go with that, I'll do mine. Um, it's uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Um, since we're talking about history stuff today, um, he's just so good. He has a podcast. It's called Hardcore History. He has a bunch for free that you can get wherever you get your normal podcast. But he has some that you you can buy, but they're definitely worth it because he goes in-depth. Um, he's just a great historian. He did an awesome series on World War oh, He's done a bunch, the cons and uh, uh, World War One and World War Two, but... Um, it's called the Apocalypse. Uh, anyway, he does a great one on World War One. We'll leave the uh, link in the the description below. But great historian, um, really entertaining. He's got a good uh, good story voice. Nice. Sounds good. <laughs> my so my recommendation recommendation for the week <clears throat> has really nothing to do with. Uh, medieval history except for the fact that it is a person who works with knives <laughs> uh there's a uh this this uh this guy's name um his his instagram handle is uh at the topicala t-o-p-i-c-a-l-a and he's also on on youtube as the topicala um uh, i don't know exactly where he's from i think it's some somewhere in the uh uh, you know, Sweden, Finland, that area. Exact. I'm not exactly sure, but he. Uh, I've I've been watching for a couple of years. What he really focuses on is is handle scalping and making handles for knives. So he doesn't. He's not a knife maker, but he'll take knives. He'll get he'll get knife blanks and he'll do the handle, which is fascinating to me because he's done a lot of these handles. He has a fairly simple setup to make the handles that he does, but um beautiful beautiful things he he always uh does videos of his work and he'll do commissions for for people and stuff but just uh it, it, i think to me the reason why one of the reasons why i like it is kind of it goes back to the way a craftsperson would have maybe worked uh before this kind of modern uh resurgence of craft where someone's doing everything mm. it's kind of it kind of leads back to like there'd be a blacksmith that would make you know the steel or the iron and then there would be other people who did different things, right? He, he would have been like the woodworker or the handle maker. Right. So he might've been, you know, he had that specialty. So, um, he does, he does handles for knives and he does beautiful work. And so that's my, uh, my recommendation, the Topicala. Nice. You can find them on YouTube and Instagram. There you go. I, um, uh, I have the, the fish, the name blueprint for Armageddon was the, uh, was the series that I read. It must be, or not read. I listened to it. It's probably 10 or 11 hours long. I think that one's for free. Um, This is the synopsis. The planet hasn't seen a major war between all the great powers since the downfall of Napoleon at Waterloo in 1815. But 99 years later, the dam breaks and Pandora's box of violence engulfs the planet. (laughs) Sounds sounds exciting. It's it's really must have been a heck of a war. Whole bunch of nastiness (laughs) happens after that. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So is is that a uh, is that a you said it's a podcast. It is. It, it is a podcast. Story, he has you know? a bunch of them. You can get them for free, like a normal podcast. But he also yeah. put them out yeah. as 
stuff you can buy. They're like a buck each. They're definitely worth it. Right. Um, cool. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you can listen to 10 hours of, of, of anything, any subject he goes into. He goes in-depth, and uh, it's, nice. it's really good. Awesome. All right, everybody. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. This was fun and fascinating. And like I said before, you know, just kind of blow my mind with you know the stories, the things that you know, and that the specific specificity of that time period. <laughs> um, so, thanks everybody so much for watching. Uh, you can find us uh, on YouTube at the Art of Craftsmanship. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram at hashtag at the art or. Um, at the art of craftsmanship. Uh, and then if you want to find another way to uh, support us for the art of craftsmanship, you can go over to Patreon and support us there. Uh, ben, is there any, uh, any social media that you, that you do that you want people to follow you or anything specific that you want to say? Uh, no, I don't. Or? At least not, 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 not at this point. <laughs> gotcha. But you are working on some books. I am so. working on a couple of books. Um, but, uh, awesome. they are not, um, they're specialist books, so they're not uh, gotcha. at this point. Uh, right. So then, well, then I would love to it. <laughs> well, they're very, yeah, they're very they're like very expensive. They will be very expensive and mostly bought by libraries. So, uh, gotcha. I relate to something else eventually, well, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. This has been fun. Uh, we will put the information in the show notes below for all of the recommendations and uh, where you can follow us. And uh, you could also please go over to the Makery Network if you're not already there and check out all the other podcasters on the network. We have a really awesome group of people who are doing really cool things that uh, it's all about making and you know, the the mentality behind it and how we all do this craft that we love. So. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.